When I was in elementary school, I played a card soldier in a production of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I was probably, if I have to remember, I was probably the Seven of Hearts. I don't know. All I remember, though, is in my little third grade mentality, I felt the need to be the method actor, and I lost a lot of weight for that role. Well, I, could, I played a card soldier. Well, what do you expect? That seemed to be uh, a role or uh, one of many roles that I, for some reason, ended up uh, participating in in elementary school, which I, looking back on, I'm not quite sure what inspired me to um, go out for these plays. But also looking back on it, I probably, I probably auditioned for these group roles just on the mere fact that uh, my dad hadn't picked me up from school. So it was like after school, I think I just did after school activities, but just by proxy. I mean, that's where I was. That's where I was going to stay for a while. So I inadvertently, I, but maybe by osmosis, probably was just enveloped into the each production into like, I remember we did uh, Oliver Twist. I played a little orphan boy. How appropriate. Maybe that's what I, I probably told, I prob, maybe I prompted my dad to just not pick me up for that very reason. Again, going to be, you know, through the eyes of a method actor, that's probably, that's probably what I uh, coordinated with him. I wanted to feel like a real orphan, so I said, don't pick me up at school. I need to know what it's like to be orphaned for this role in Oliver Twist. And it wasn't a speaking role, but you know you could sense the, you could you could sense the, the liberation. You know the craft. Uh, of course, then I played the card soldier. Um, which uh, literally was a giant playing card. I, it was it. I wore the costume like a sandwich board. So I was a seven, probably a seven of hearts or a six of hearts, who knows. It was a red and white affair. But the card, you know, was probably about three feet high. And then there was uh, like a felt heart that had a f- opening that you, you know, your face, you know, you poked your face through and then it was attached to your head by the back but with some kind of like little um, elastic strap, you know, bendable, adjustable strap so that you had a heart head and a card body. Cause, and uh, they probably didn't give us the typical spears like the card soldiers had in the cartoon because, uh, well, because we're like third grade, we're probably, we're probably impaling each other on these things, you know. And then you just stay after school and you'd practice. And they were all musicals, which made perfect sense. I mean, to keep the attention of elementary school kids and staff, you'd want to throw in a, about 70 or 80, you know, little numbers here and there, some old standards. Um, seems like I was in a few productions. 
we I know we did another one on uh, HMS Pinafore. I wasn't in that one, but my buddy Sean was. He was he um, he was like he was my best friend. He was the guy that uh, uh, the first day of school, I you know, I think he was in front of me at the drinking fountain, and just asked if I wanted. You know, I wanted to be his friend, and I said sure, and that's how, you know, again, there's no formal paperwork or anything to be filed, so it all worked out. But uh, he was also like, uh, well, being a principal's son, I don't, uh, you know, maybe not have been a pressurized thing, but uh, he uh, was very active in in these productions. I think he was. Uh, he was in all the same productions, but he had more of the speaking roles. I was more in the background. I was, you know, making, making moves. I was the guy, I was the, the guy behind the guy behind the guy, you know, whatever that means. But, um, shout out to, uh, I just, uh, was kind of thumbing through some, some useless information on the World Wide Web, and Derrick Henry, I didn't realize, well, first of all, I didn't realize Derrick Henry had the high school record for single game rushing yards, and what it was, the record which got beat uh, this last weekend, I think, but he had the record for 502 yards in a single game. I think he went to, well, he went to South Walton High School. I think that's in Florida. Yeah. Uh, or breaking a high, breaking a Florida high school record once held by NFL, by current NFL superstar Derek, Derek Henry. This kid, he, uh, his name is, his name is where is this son of a bitch? Where is this guy? Um, Caleb Wagner shattered the Florida. Now I don't know if this is the national record, but it's if it's not, it's damn. It's got to be damn close. But shattered the Florida single game rushing record held by Derrick Henry, the Tennessee Titan, the great Tennessee Titan, current and great Tennessee Titan, who rushed for over 2,000 yards last year, by the way. Um, This kid ran for, what was the total? 520, no, where is it? Broke the, oh, Wagner racked up 535 yards and six touchdowns, (laughs) carrying his team to a 49-48 win. They just barely won. 535 yards in one game and he only has one hand this guy this kid Wagner has averaged and he's a junior she uh, averaged a whopping 409 yards rushing in three games this year average 409 yards over three games so far Along with, along with reaching the end zone 15 times, he was born without his left hand and part of his forearm because of a condition called amniotic band syndrome. Unbelievable. 
outside of the single game record in Florida, Henry's senior season rushing totals of 4,261 yards and 55 touchdowns are also state marks. 55 touchdowns. That's a running back. He also, he also broke the national high school career rushing record. He ran for a total of 12,124 yards, eclipsing Ken Hall's standard that stood for almost 60 years. So 12,000, he rushed for over 12,000 yards. Derrick Henry, that dude, he's just a bull. He's a beast. He's a machine. 12,000 yards, that's over 3,000 yards a season. Get the fuck out of here. That's impressive. Just as impressive as the 55 touchdowns. I mean, that's like... that. If you do that as a quarterback and you've got... I mean, the opportunity to, to score is... By and large, I think it's better for a quarterback than a running back. And 55 that. That would be, let's see, what is the record right now? I think the record's like 50. The NFL record's like in the 50s, but it may not be that high. 55 touchdowns, I can't remember who who broke. Oh, it was it Peyton Manning? I think Peyton Manning has the record now. That being said, when you jump to the NFL, you know what I was blown away by too is uh, I was looking up, and this was a while back, but I was like, what what is how many guys have broken the 2000 yard barrier in college because I know there's only been like five or six in the NFL which I was wrong there's eight did not realize there was eight I remember there there was always a handful like Eric Dickerson has the record he's got he still has the NFL record 2105 yards which he had beaten OJ's at the time OJ had the record of 2003 yards but Eric Dickerson was a beast. That guy ran like 1,800 for 1,800 yards as a rookie. So you know he was going to be a badass. And he was, and he still is. Uh, got out while he, while going was still good as an L.A. Ram. Oh, well, he ended up as a Colt, but he broke the record as a Ram in 84. But uh, so I was thinking like, okay, there's only a him. And I remember watching a thing on TV when they were, they were making a, some kind of presentation about uh, they're showing all these greats, these NFL greats and uh, they were out on it was the beginning of a football game and Eric Dickerson was out, out there and they were honoring him for breaking the the uh, single season record and then they and then OJ came out and OJ was like playfully he kind of came up to Eric Dickerson this is before he killed his wife of course but he came up to like in some kind of a, you know, fake, funny attack mode. Like, he was going to get, I was going to get you, Eric Dickerson, out on the field, like, in front of this whole this whole presentation before a game. I'm like, oh, shit, damn. Like, looking back on it, it's like, well, maybe he really was, I don't know, as a precursor for, uh, I don't know, maybe that's really why he killed his wife. I don't know. Uh, or Nicole, or, now they weren't married, but. Good old OJ, but man, there's eight, eight guys in the NFL that have broken the 2,000 mark. 
So second place is Adrian Peterson at 2,097 yards. Man, he came within eight yards of tying nine yards of breaking Dickerson's record. Then you got Jamal Lewis at 2,066. Barry Sanders, I remember when he did that 20... Uh, 2,053 yards. Derrick Henry last year, 2,027. Terrell Davis from the Broncos, 98. He rushed for 2,008 yards. And then Chris Johnson of the Titans, uh, about 12 years ago, 2006. And then OJ. OJ bringing up the rear, looking for the real killer at 2,003. Number eight. Then you got guys like Earl Campbell at 1934. The late great Earl Campbell. Man, that guy was a that guy was a beast. Oh, that's what it was. So I remember reading or seeing something on YouTube maybe about Earl Campbell and like all the. Uh, I think he went to Texas. Like, oh no, it was about Ricky Williams run, rushing for like 2,600 yards and. Uh, when he was at Texas. I remember when Ricky Williams was at Texas. That's how fucking old I am. When Ricky Williams, the long-retired Miami Dolphins slash New Orleans Saint, the great running back Ricky Williams, uh, who was a Texas phenom, just a beat. I remember uh, 98, His that was his senior year, watching him just rack up these numbers and he he's at 15th overall at 1853 yards that was 2002 uh walter payton 1852 just one yard behind ricky williams just legends legends uh barry sanders shit he's he's tied for 10th overall with uh, amon green at 1883 and and barry sanders already has the fourth spot locked up at, 20, at 2,053 yards. Sean Alexander, 1,880 yards. I remember that was a good year. I think that was the year. Did he go to the Super Bowl that year, 05? Was that the year that he got? I think it is. I think that was the year they played the Steelers in the Super Bowl, and they got robbed by the Steelers. Got robbed. Bull bullshit. So, but that's eight guys breaking the 2,000 barrier. But then you go to college, there are 35 motherfuckers that broke 2,000 yards. 35, count them. Uh, when Ricky Williams was in Texas, he ran for 2,124 yards. Fucking strong. That's good for 15th place. Yeah. But yeah, the Collegiate record, the NCAA, NCAA record for rushing in a single season is held by the one, the only, Barry Sanders at 2,628 yards for Oklahoma State. Fucking beast. And not too far behind him, Melvin Gordon, the uh, former Charger. I think he's, he's, he's not a Charger anymore, I don't think. But uh, 2,587 for Wisconsin. Motherfucker. And then you go, and then, uh, so Barry Sanders was 88, Melvin Gordon 2014, 
Uh, University of Central Florida, Kevin Smith, 2,567 yards. And then coming at fourth, Marcus Allen, the USC grade. 1981 ran 2,427 yards. Fucking stupid. Derrick Henry was a beast in college. I remember watching Derrick Henry uh, five years ago, six years ago at Alabama. 2,219 yards. In college, I mean, that's fucking it's just insane. Tony Dorsett comes in number 11th, 2,150 yards for Pitt. The great Dallas Cowboy, Tony Dorsett. Remember watching Tony Dorsett run for 99 yards on one single drive. To, I think he still has the record for where it's tied or, I don't know, the rushing. Remember watching that was against the, shit, I don't remember. He went down the sidelines, though. Uh, anyway, that's my, um, that's my, that's my sports take for the day. Back to you with current affairs. Um, I was blown away. There's 35 guys broke 2000 yards for a single season in college, but this kid, 500, I mean, fuck, 535 yards in one like, that's fucking insane. That's the length of the field five times and then another 35 yards. And he's only a junior. And he's only got one hand. So what do you got to complain about? <laughs> My sciatica. Oh, anyway. So, moving on. I've been... Uh, well, I've still been bouncing around with this and that, reading this and that, hearing this and that. I heard some things. I heard some things. Uh, picked up a couple books this uh, this uh, week. I, like I was saying in the last podcast, I think I got the new, uh, well, the old, the new Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino is a novelist. His movies are dialogue-driven, so I'm getting excited to read the. Uh, getting excited to read his novelization of the movie, uh, "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." Uh, but I've, you know, adapted to this transition now back to city life, and I and I kind of I'm enjoying it a bit. You know, I Tuesday morning I went out for my my little hike. I hike around town. I hike through like the Civic Center, the Square, Chamber of Commerce, through Old Town, past the restaurants. You know, I give my I give my critique to a lot of the restaurant proprietors as they're trying to fashion where they should set their outdoor umbrellas and give them my two cent. You know, like give them my thumbs up. But but the street that uh, that I'm staying on with my lady is uh, populated primarily by like it's all like car lots it's all all these little pot lots and they're all well seemingly well organized but there's nobody on them ever really it's kind of weird Tuesday morning particularly on like 10.30 when I'm out there on a Tuesday morning it's like the Tuesday morning is the loneliest time in car sales believe me like, even worse than Mondays. 
Like Mondays suck, but Mondays in the car business are, you could have a big Monday without even realizing it. Like, because Monday is the day that all the guys that got slapped around over the weekend, they were there to buy something, but they just got, they were hemming and hawing all weekend. Well, I got to go look at the Honda. I got to go look at this. Or my wife said I got to check in with her. You know, and so they get smacked around from lot to lot and um, don't end up purchasing anything. So, but they have to, they're getting something and they end up getting it on a Monday. And so Mondays are all the fallout from the weekend. The dregs, the dregs of the weekend, you know, they show up, they, it's like that foamy shit on the ocean shore, you know, on the beach, you know, that just gets washed up. You're like, you don't quite, it's not, it's not like regular froth. It's kind of like gross. It's kind of funky. Like, eh, don't touch that shit. Like that's what shows up on Mondays at car dealerships. You're like, eh, it looks like a deal. It probably, yeah, well, it's a deal. Ugh. But it's a, it's a grimy one because they've been to 17 places in the last 24 hours. So, you know, you wish things were simpler. You wish things were, you wish things were black and white. You know, somebody shows up to the lot. I want that one. I've, you know, there's an old adage, and this goes out to my car sales buddies. And, and well, anybody really in this predicament, this precarious, if you're ever presented with the notion, the situation that somebody, like this has happened to me and this has happened to a lot of people, you'd be standing out on the lot waiting for somebody or whatever, somebody will pull up, they'll park right in front of you say, they'll get out and they'll, they'll just announce, all right, who's selling me a car today? And when you hear that, you run, you run for the hills because they're there to buy and they're going to buy, but it's going to be the most nerve wracking, biggest black hole of time that you've ever encountered. Like you'd be better off being sucked into a black hole because that deal will not go down easy. Okay. They're there to buy. Well, everyone's there to buy it. They don't walk on the lot unless they're there to buy. Don't let them tell you otherwise. Buyers are liars. But when that man or woman gets out of that vehicle and they say, I'm here to buy. Who's, who's going to sell me my car today? Who's ready, to, who's ready to sell a car? You fucking run. Because they are going to drag your ass through the knothole in the fence to make that deal. There's nothing easy about that deal. There is no lay down. They are not a lay down. I mean, yeah, if you like putting, you know, if you like putting like uh, a cattle prod on your nuts, then yeah, you're not going to die probably. It's going to suck, but uh, take the deal, take the deal. But I had those, man, and it's a rough one. It's a rough one. You wish things were black and white. You wish things were a little easier. You wish things were simple, like... The simplicity of things is what I do. We all, I think we all secretly crave simplicity. We do like simplicity, but when we have it, it's almost a mind fuck. It's like, what's wrong? What's, what's, what's really going on? Uh, you know, I mean, as like, 
getting back to the books and shit like I've been talking about reading about as an aside, another takeaway, another takeaway I came across in the book Hungry, this one by Jeff Gordonier, Gordonier, was that even uh, especially world, especially world class chefs prefer simplicity. You know, a simple slice of raw lamb on a strawberry dust with sea salt, or perhaps that piece of cod left to its own devices, having left the salt from the sea that it had been floating in just minutes before to season it, letting the acid of a lemon cook it only ever so slightly to perfection. That That is the simplicity that they, even though they come up with these complicated, strange, alchemic, it's almost alchemy, the way that they kind of fuse these things to kind of generate an, an, an alchemy in your own brain, you know, this leap of a taste that's supposed to ignite your senses or make you react to or connect with another flavor on, you know, like a strawberry with a piece of raw lamb. You know, there's something that that is in that chemical equation that's designed to kind of fire some neurons in your brain. Like that's the brilliance of these shifts. But, but ultimately, they crave that simplicity. That's, you know, you know, after work, where are they gonna? Where are they gonna go? Where are they gonna eat? They're not gonna. They might eat at their place, but maybe not. Maybe they're gonna go down the road to get a slice of pizza or a burger or just a beer or whatever. But. You know, the simplicity by design may seem like a put-on or, or put-together, but what it isn't is something that is telling you what to feel or think. Uh, you know, when they when they put that piece of cod in front of you or they put a piece of raw lamb laying across a strawberry that's been dashed with sea salt... It's the most basic thing in the world. It's the most simplest thing in the world. But what it's not doing is telling you what to feel or think. You know, it's up to you. You know, that's 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 great art, you know. So, but I've kind of discovered a lot of these kind of like through the looking glass moments. Like there's no black or white going on anymore. You know, like last week I was listening to this podcast, Jocko Willink, he's a, uh, ex-Marine and he's, he's a leader, you know, he's that guy, he's special forces, like he's the guy that will, you know, tell you what's up, he is that guy and he's, he could, he's one of those guys that could, could convince you to carry a canoe from, you know, Folsom to fucking Fair Oaks and uh, and not take the highway, you know. He's one of those guys, but he was, uh, on his podcast, he was reading this book, or he, the subject of the book, or the subject of the podcast was this book that, by this guy, Smedley Butler. And uh, Smedley Butler was a... Uh, He's one of only 19 men in 
history in, in the U.S. to receive the Medal of Honor twice. Um, he, was a, a, he was a major general in the Marine Corps. And uh, he, you know, back in the, well, this, okay, so he lived from uh, 1880 to 1940. Or 1881, he was born in 1881. Died in 1940. And uh, he was senior officer of the Marine Corps. He fought and all these, there was so many, so many conflicts during this gap or this time frame in the U.S. You know, um, he fought in, in, in the Philippine-American War, the Boxer Rebellion, the Mexican Revolution, World War One. World War One was really kind of an escalation of every, you know, World War One. Aside from say, like the Civil War, was one of the bloodiest, just nastiest, because it was like everything kind of the technology had been ramped up so much, you know, further, uh, much further. The technology was at that point with the guns and the uh, just the equipment that they used was so much more advanced than the previous uh, conflicts in like the Spanish-American War or the uh, you know, the Mexican Revolution and uh, but uh, he participated in all these military actions and some of them were like, again based on the time frame they were kind of like dominated by the U.S. because we had all the money. And we had all the... I mean, we had the infrastructure. We had the guns. We had the factories. And we... Uh, and at the time of his death, he was the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. But uh, so... But he'd written this book. Well, okay. First, he... He went on... He became... Uh, he became an outspoken critic of, of, of these wars, uh, of the American wars and their consequences. And uh, so he went on a speaking tour that basically was him saying and then putting pen to paper that war is a racket which was the title of the book. He describes and criticizes the workings of the U.S. and its foreign actions and wars, such as those in which he had been involved. Uh, and he was very critical of uh, American corporations and, you know, other imperialist motivations behind them, which is really interesting. Um, and what made it even more interesting was Jocko, this guy Jocko Willink, literally almost re, almost literally reading word for it because it's only fifty one pages. This book, um, he wrote he you know he basically was reading chapter for chapter. There's like five five. It's broken down in like five sections. Um, you know, first section is war is a racket. Second section, who makes the profits? Three, who pays the bills? Four, who's, how to smash this racket? And five, to hell with war. So the most decorated U.S. Marine in history. And one of only 19 guys in history to get two Medal of Honors. 
goes on this kind of speaking tour in the early 30s, giving the speech that war is a racket. And uh, it was so well received that he wrote a longer version as, a, as this, this short book that he published. It came out in 1935. So this guy, Jocko, this guy Jocko too, he's like, he is the epitome of kind of the Marine ethic. He is that guy. He's a, but he, first and foremost, he, he's a leader. He's a leader of men. And that can't be taken away from you. And I don't, but I, I can't, I couldn't figure out why he was re, I mean, he was kind of going along with all this. And he would, you know, an hour into the podcast, he's talking about, as he's reading, he's reading word for word, and he's annotating the percentages and numbers of profits that each industry was accumulating, you know, like the mosquito net industry, the boot industry, the war bonds, how the war bonds were sold to support the war. And then the GIs were so anxious to get out from under these war bonds as they matured that they were, you know, they were bought back from these, from the American people at like $89 a bond as they matured, you know, once they matured. And then Wall Street would turn around and make an even bigger profit on them. So it, it was pretty, and it's very thorough. It's not just a, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a uh, theoretical piece. It was legit numbers. Like each industry, you know, the guns, the vehicles, the tanks, the ships, the, and it was ridiculous. The profit margins, you're talking 30, 40, 80, 1100%, 1800% profit, just full on gouging. I mean, um, uh, to summer. Okay. So here's a good little summary. War is a racket. This is what he, in a condensed, um, in a condensed little summary, that war is a racket. It it always has been. It and this is in his words. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. That's very true. But then he goes on to say, you know, you know he helped make even Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. He helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. Uh, he helped in raping in the raping of a half a dozen Central American republics for the benefits of Wall Street. The record of racketeering is long. You know, he helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in uh, 1909 through 1912. Uh, you know, brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests. 
China, he helped to, to see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. You know, this is, you know, this is deliberate, deliberate, deliberate war for deliberate profit. Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's really sad. Um, but then he goes on to say it can be, uh, so to make, okay, so the point is to make war unprofitable. So Butler suggests that, uh, the means for this, and it's so bizarre. That's what I'm tripping out on. Like, why is Jocko willing, you know, this hugely revered Marine leader of men, squadrons, reading it, he's reading it. He's just, there's, there's no take on it. He's just reading it. But he goes on to say, to you know, to you have to make war unprofitable. Okay. Because that's what's been, that's what we've been fueling our economy with. I mean, the CIA was selling cocaine to fund the Vietnam War. We were selling guns in Nicaragua for Reagan. I mean, Jesus, it's, we're out there always going to court. I mean, we all forget about Oliver North. You know, we all forget about these guys that were, you know, stood in a grand jury to answer questions. Why, why were, you know, why are you selling guns? What's going on? What's the risk? But the whole thing is like, it's a, it's a farce. It's a, it's a, it's like a production. It's just, it's just grandstanding because the politicians know, they know, you know, but anyway, he goes on to say it can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. You know, they used to see the draft was only instituted because back in uh, back in those early days with those early wars, the Spanish-American War, the Boxer Rebellion. See, soldiers, our soldiers in particular, could negotiate their pay. So they were, in, you know, in essence, you know, soldiers of fortune, so to speak. You know, they could basically negotiate what they were going to, their own, their own profitability. But these scumbag, soulless, blood-sucking scumbag politicians noticed that the more decorated they became, the more prioritized that uh, that that became to them to as as a soldier. So, in lieu of payment, they promised a uh, well. They, they do. They basically did away with that. They did. They did away with the negotiation, and conscripted the draft, and as a replacement or an appeasement, um, gave them gave them more of a chance to win more medals and more honors and stuff like that, which they seem to, I don't know why that was such a uh, great replacement, but yeah, they basically did away with compensation in lieu of decoration for these poor bastards that went to war. So 
the uh, yeah, the only way to smash this racket was to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can, could be con conscripted. Let let the officers officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our steel companies and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all other things that provide profit in wartime as well as the bankers and the speculators be conscripted to get $30 a month. The same wage as the lads in the trenches get. So, you know, acts of war to be decided by those who fight it. You know, he suggested a, lift, a limited referendum to determine if the war is to be fought. Eligible to vote would be those who risk death on the front lines. Acts of war to be decided by those who fight it. I like that, you know? that This was his idea. An act of war was to be decided by those who fought it. Suggesting a limited referendum to determine if the war is to be fought. And eligible to vote would be those who were going to risk death on the front lines. That's brilliant. Yeah, put a vote to it. Instead of fucking bringing in this fucking numb nut with the big fucking ears sticking out looking like a taxi cab with the doors open going down the road this fucking George W. Bush whose vice president just happened to be the former CEO of Halliburton oh wow how interesting and then one short year later there just happens to be this catastrophic 2001 September 11th catastrophe that basically set us up like like the Grateful Dead song set up like a bolt like a bowling pin knock down line -na 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 -na. you know fucking right under our noses right under our noses and they played us they played us this whole jingoistic thing Oh, you, don't you love your country? Don't you love your country? Look, I got the wherewithal, man, to back these poor guys that just are government issue, GIs, no say. They're just property of the government now, just being led into this fucking sausage mill. These pro-lifers that are just like, fuck it. We're sending you to war. For why? I don't know. Well, didn't we just pull out of Afghanistan the 20-year war? 20 years ago. 20 years ago this all happened. 2000, 2001. September 11, 2001. 20 years ago we got set up. And got suckered in. Got roped into this bullshit because of this fucking scumbag Dick Cheney. Who's up there duck hunting in North Dakota. Blowing his fucking chief of staff's face off. And for what? Profit. These fucking hypocritical scumbags. They should fucking lock up the whole Bush family. They're fuckers. But anyway. Sometimes I get on a little rant. My apologies. So, anyway. I just thought it was, it was just bizarre. Just, uh, you know, this decorated Marine Corps 
legend Jocko Willink. Reading straight from a book. Reading straight from the book, War is a Racket. And offering absolutely no rebuttal. You know, up is down, black is white, left is right. And what the fuck, man? What the fuck's going on? But anyway. So. I don't know. Maybe the real world is a contrivance. Maybe we've all been sold a bill of goods. I don't know. We all seem to do things as if we were corralled into a funnel without questioning the merits of not doing it, you know? You know, a lot of it, you know, you can, you can kind of, you can kind of, you can kind of like parlay that into like, I don't know, man, just lately things have been just, it's been opposite world. It's been like, it's been like Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass. It's just, there is no, there is no black and white anymore. There's, there's, there's nuance, but we don't have time for nuance anymore. You know, but yeah, maybe the, maybe the real world is a, is a contrivance, you know, like if you like speaking of like the Grateful Dead, you know, upon further reflection, you can say, say, take a, like a Venn diagram of, of a band like the Grateful Dead, because the more I listen to them, the more I understand, like, they're not a hippie band. I mean, the hippies do obviously flock to them. You know, I seen it firsthand when I was up and up off of the 101 one year and uh, I think it was just past Piercy off the 101 up in the Redwoods up there. I snuck into a Jerry Garcia band show and took mushrooms. And the whole cult was out there, man. They were out there selling their goods, digging their vibes, riding the wave, but... The more I listen to the Grateful Dead, they're not a hippie. It's not a hippie. They're, that's a by, it's kind of a byproduct. Like if you took a Venn diagram of, of that band, a case could be made that they, they aren't hippie. They aren't hippies. You know, a lot of them did jail time. Well, for other things. I mean, hippies do jail time too, but, but they aren't hippies. Well, maybe only by proximity. Uh, but they, if you broke them apart or if you laid out the Venn diagram, broke it into the different pieces of the sociological structure that, that composes this band, it's a little hippie. It's a lot of space traveler. It's some redneck where the bluegrass influences come in. But these are guys like... These guys... These are guys that would be like my uncle up in Oregon who is always kind of just fiddling around on the acoustic guitar if they hadn't found acid out in Palo Alto hanging out with Ken Kesey, you know? Um, Flip that conversation around, though, and try to... Like... Look at something... Be open to the oppositeness of something, okay? So, like, 
something that you can make an easy assumption, but it isn't. It's quite the opposite. Like I was listening to, uh, I was listening to this. Uh, well, I was listening to Rogan. I was listening to Bert Kreischer on Rogan, and he uh, the other day he was saying that uh, he knew like the he, he he was saying like the ultra liberal yoga types, the ultra 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 liberal, like the real hippies, the old school hippies, aren't down with. Uh, the high high percentages of aren't aren't down with taking a vaccine. You know the logic kind of steps across this diagonal ethos that you wouldn't expect, right? If that makes sense. But if you really think about it, it isn't so far off. Because you look at like the Grateful Dead probably wouldn't take the vaccine either. If if you interviewed him individually, of course, Jerry went tits up in 95, but um, these guys were kind of renegades. These guys were kind of like Almond Brothers without the Southern Rock label. You know, they were jazz, they were redneck, they were bluegrass, they were experimental, acid, time-traveling, you know, coke-headed, gun-toting, paranoid kind of... Not anti-government, because they're not the guy. They would almost be, like, these guys that you would think probably live in, like, the... Like, you see all those... The state of Jefferson, which is, like, this kind of patch of the foothills up in near the Placerville area. The state of Jefferson. These are all the kind of, like, borderline militia types. You could see the Grateful Dead kind of hanging out kind of on the cusp of that community, you know? Kind of, kind of probably had a probably had a couple of guns, but that's probably from just the paranoia of all the coke, you know, because they didn't just smoke weed, they didn't just take acid, they fucking did it all, man. They did coke, you know, but, but I, I if, and this is just a theory, okay, just a theory. The Grateful Dead probably wouldn't take, or a good proportion, a good uh, large majority of the band. Probably wouldn't, and this this isn't to promote or, or demote the vaccine itself, but rather show kind of a nuanced perspective. Because that's what I think is missing from the dialogue in, in all this going on today. There's no black and white. There's no black and white in the dialogue. To, well, I should say, on the surface, there is black and white. You know, for or against. The media is going to portray them because, portray this as a black and white issue because they're because of how divisive they are. They want to stir it up. They want to create division because that creates conflict, which creates reaction, which prompts you to then watch their bullshit lies. It's kind of a it's kind of a vicious circle, you know? A vicious circle cycle. Uh but even though it, you know, okay, so but you know, groups like these guys like the dead Theoretically, let's say 60% of them wouldn't wouldn't be in on the vaccine. But at the same time, they're going to take all this acid. I don't know what the fuck's in that shit. shit the, like I was saying, like the last podcast, like 30 people were hospitalized for taking bad acid when, you know, in 71 at a show. But they wouldn't take the vaccine. But everything is a roll of the dice, you know. That's 
God, I mean, if you have to be, if you have to resign yourself to the simplicity, getting back to simplicity, the simplicity of a situation, I would say that everything is a roll of the dice, right? I got the shot. Why? I don't, I got it. Well, because I'm, I got it because I'm going to, I'm going to go visit my dad. My dad's in a, in a home and I don't believe in mandates. I'm not, I'm, you know, but I'm playing the odds as well. I have the ability to roll the dice, so to speak. You know, I can, I have the luxury of rolling the dice. You know, I feel like I do. You know, um, there might be some people that don't feel like they have that option to just kind of, you know, there's legitimate fears. But if you look at it in a sense, like, First of all, I don't support a government mandate by any means. That would be antithetical to what this country was founded on. But I'm playing the data. 190,000 people in the country have already been vaccinated. And there isn't any data showing ample deaths or an outbreak of any huge, huge side effects. You know, But there are going, to, you know there's going to be side effects. You know, just like the whole, you know, the whole election thing about like, you know, election fraud. It exists. There was fraud in the election. You know? You know there was. not, But not to any grand scale that was going to influence the eventual outcome. You can't have 30,000 examples of fraud in one situation. Enough to sway that election. Because as much fraud as there was on one side, you know there was on the other. Like, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole thing about other countries influencing our elections, the whole collusion thing with Russia, the, the fact that they've got bots that are infiltrating our social media to sway our focus or our opinion or our reactions well we're doing that to other countries too don't be naive you know so if there was any fraud in the election which they're probably you know you could probably make a case for point zero five percent not enough to sway the eventual results not that it really matters anyway shit but There's fraud on the other side as well. As much, if not more. So it's kind of a... I don't know. It's weird. You know, there's there's nuance. You've got to give in to nuance. You know, a a guy I work with said that when, you know, he was in the army, he said when you join the army, they give you like a couple dozen inoculations, like... They start vaccinating you with shit that, that you may never even come across. That we don't even come across as a, in, in the general populace in the U.S. matter of fact, one of the training sessions they do is to put you in a room with nerve gas and you have to inject yourself with the antidote. So where do you draw the line, you know? But, yeah, I think there's always going to be nuance. You know, and sometimes when you think you got 
a bead on something, I don't know, maybe this is the takeaway from the whole podcast, is once you get a bead on something, look at it from the other end. Like you have, I, I, I get it, people have their way of distilling things or putting a filter on what they look at. I get that. You know, that's almost kind of a reflex. You know, that's how we were trained to think. We were trained to look at things in a certain way in our society. But as a mental exercise, it would be cool that whatever your take is on something, when you look at something and you judge it, because we're all going to, we're all, we all judge. We're all judgmental. Don't, 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 don't lie to yourself. We're all judgmental. But when you, when you put a bead on something and you, you look at the Grateful Dead and you say, that, that's a hippie band that you need to take acid. Well, flip that conversation around. Are they? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you can find counterexamples. Don't shortchange yourself. Don't shortchange yourself on the composition of anything. So, anyway, that's my take. And... I got to get back to work now. So. <laughs> I'm sure there's more shit to say. I don't know. Covered a lot of good stuff. Uh, other than that, just. Uh, hope you all had a good week. Practice good hygiene. And always tip your serve. I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies. Thank you.